Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The unlikely origins of a world-famous toy. The cut-off company was facing disaster. The scandalous fallout from a Hollywood flop. Some say that the film was cursed. And the bizarre account of a visitor from afar. A hatch opens, then a man steps out. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics. Each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. From the more than 2,400 stars on its Walk of Fame to Grauman's Chinese Theater, Hollywood, California is the epicenter of the movie business. And celebrating the silver screen's illustrious past is the Hollywood Museum. Here, artifacts ranging from antique film equipment to jewelry worn by Marilyn Monroe exalt the glamorous art of Hollywood mythmaking. But according to museum curator Donnell Dadigan, there is one item here that tells a far less celebrated tale. It is made of silk. It has some embroidery work with a wonderful fur trim all along the edges. Very, very beautiful and well well made. This gown was worn in an infamous Hollywood movie shrouded in mystery. Some say that the film that this gown was worn in was cursed. In what film was this dress worn? And what horrible fate befell its cast and crew? June 1954, St. George, Utah. John Wayne, Susan Hayward, and 220 cast and crew members are just outside this small desert town to shoot The Conqueror, a film about Genghis Khan's love affair with a captured princess. 
The location has been meticulously chosen by millionaire producer Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes finds a location that will double for Mongolia in Snow Canyon, Utah, a vast desert with giant red rocks. Susan Hayward plays the role of the captured princess and appears on set in elaborate costumes, like this one, now on display at the Hollywood Museum. To simulate the tumultuous sandstorms of the Mongolian desert, director Dick Powell employs industrial wind machines. For 13 weeks, the cast is just covered from head to toe with this red dust, whether it's while they're filming, when they're resting between takes, while they're eating their lunches and dinners. After months of filming, the movie is completed. On February 22, 1956, this big-budget blockbuster finally hits the silver screen. But as movie historian Harry Medved explains... The critics and audiences are unanimous. The Conqueror is a flop. It just, it didn't work. John Wayne was great as, you know, everyone's favorite cowboy. But in the Genghis Khan story, everybody was laughing it off the screen. It seems this Hollywood bomb will recede into the annals of cinema failures. But in the following years, it begins to garner a rather morbid notoriety. In 1963, the film's director, Dick Powell, dies from cancer. Months later, co-star Pedro Amandares dies of a self-inflicted gunshot wound after enduring a painful struggle with the same disease. In the months and years that follow, Hollywood insiders observe a bizarre and seemingly inevitable trend. One by one, the Conqueror's cast and crew are dying of cancer. Agnes Moorhead, who played the mother, she died shortly after that. Susan Hayward then died. Finally, in 1979, John Wayne, the Duke, loses his battle with the dreaded disease. How is it that this one film had this connection to all of these horrible deaths? Many begin to wonder, are the cast and crew of The Conqueror cursed? A year after John Wayne's death, People magazine investigates this Hollywood mystery and makes a shocking discovery. Of the 220-some people who worked on The Conqueror, about 91 of them were diagnosed with cancer. And by the time that the Duke had died in 1979, over 40 people had died of cancer. Experts confirm this is more than three times the average cancer rate in America. Many Hollywood insiders point to tobacco use by the stars to explain this inordinately high rate. All these guys were pretty much heavy-duty smokers, especially John Wayne. But soon, a critical piece of information comes to light that shifts attention to the area where The Conqueror was filmed. In the town of St. George, Utah, where a lot of the people were staying while they were shooting The Conqueror, nearly half the people in town were diagnosed with cancer. So there was something very strange about all of this. What possible reason could there be for such high rates of this deadly disease? The answer may lie in a secretive government project conducted in the neighboring desert sands. May 19, 1953, Yucca Flats, Nevada. For years, the United States has been testing atomic weapons in a patch of desert 150 miles northeast of the small community of St. George. People were reassured everything was going to be okay. People in St. George were, don't worry, it's fine. It's all going to dissipate. 
And on this day, the military prepares for its largest test to date. The last of the bombs at Yucca Flats, Nevada, had a payload four times the amount of the bomb that was dropped in Hiroshima. But moments before impact, the winds begin to shift, placing St. George, Utah, immediately downwind of the nuclear testing site. At 5.05 a.m., the bomb detonates. And enormous amounts of radioactive dust rain down upon the sands of southern Utah. One year later, while searching for a location that will double as Mongolia, Howard Hughes contacts government officials to inquire if it's safe to film near St. George. Howard Hughes had asked experts at the Atomic Energy Commission, is it going to be safe to shoot my movie The Conqueror here in St. George, Utah, in Snow Canyon? And they were given the go-ahead. But years later, many remain convinced that the high incidence of cancer among the cast and crew of The Conqueror can be attributed to exposure to radioactively contaminated sand. And with medical science unable to directly isolate the exact factors that caused the cancer, the true reason for these tragic cases may never be known. Today, this silken dress worn by the late Susan Hayward, tucked in the vault of the Hollywood Museum, is a solemn reminder of a dark mark on cinema history. Bisected by the Genesee River is New York's third largest metropolitan area, Rochester. This city is known as the home of George Eastman and the company he established in 1892, photography giant Kodak. Today, visitors to Rochester can find an institution dedicated to the art of fun, the Strong National Museum of Play. Here, according to chief curator Christopher Bench, people are invited to look and touch. You can ride on our 1918 carousel. You can explore our walk-in live butterfly garden. But among the classic video games and model trains is one item that's far less colorful. It doesn't look like much at first glance, but this gray soft material is moldable, stretchable, infinitely playable, and you'd never guess whose hands it winds up in. What is this unassuming gray lump? And how did it get shaped into an enduring American classic? 1933, Cincinnati, Ohio. The Great Depression has caused countless American businesses to fold. And a struggling soap manufacturing company called Cut All Products is poised to join their ranks. A 21-year-old salesman named Cleo McVicker is told to sell off Cut All's remaining inventory and shut it down for good. But McVicker has an idea that just might keep the business open. In the 1930s, homes are heated with coal furnaces that leave a dirty residue on wallpaper. Spring cleaning used to be something that housewives dreaded. They had to wash their walls because their coal-burning furnaces put out so much soot. Most wallpapers are too delicate to wash with soap and water. So, in order to save his company, Cleo pitches executives from a local grocery chain a product that he promises will remove soot without damaging wallpaper. They placed an order for 15,000 cases. The only snag was Cleo didn't know how to make wallpaper cleaner. 
desperate to deliver on his promises, he enlists the help of his brother, Noah. Noah concocted a wallpaper cleaner out of flour, water, mineral oil, salt, and boric acid. And they produce a wallpaper product very much like this one that you would put on your dirty, sooty wallpaper, and you wound up with clean walls at the end of your project. Cuddle Wall Cleaner hits grocery shelves across Ohio and is an immediate success. And over the next two decades, there seems to be no limit to the company's fortunes. But by the 1950s, Cuddle, now run by Cleo's son Joe, suddenly finds business in freefall. Dirty coal furnaces have been replaced by clean gas and electric heaters, which do not produce a sooty residue. Housewives had no need for wallpaper cleaner anymore, and the Cuddle Company was facing disaster. Their key product was becoming completely obsolete. So what stroke of genius will it take to save this struggling family business? It's the 1950s in Cincinnati, Ohio, when demand for its signature product, a gray putty-like wallpaper cleaner, dries up. The Cuddle Company, run by Joseph McVicker, is driven to the verge of collapse. But salvation for this struggling family business will come in a most unexpected form. December 1954. Kay Zufall, Joe McVicker's sister-in-law, is a nursery school teacher in New Jersey. While looking for a Christmas project for her students, she chances upon a new use for an old product. Kay was leafing through a magazine and saw a recommendation that you could make ornaments out of wallpaper cleaner. The next day, Kay brings the gray, dough-like material to her nursery school and gives it to her students, who instantly take to its limitless possibilities, creating figures in all shapes and sizes. The kids loved it. It was everything she wished for in an arts and crafts product. And as soon as she can, Kay calls her brother-in-law, Joe, to bend his ear about this new use for his company's signature product. And Joe McVicker realizes that Kay has happened upon a brilliant idea. He instructs Cuddle executives to rebrand their wallpaper cleaner as a cheap and creative children's plaything. They remove the detergent qualities of it that would take the soot off the wall, and they give it a new aroma. Not only that, but the company soon takes its dull-looking putty, just like the small sample in the collection of the Strong Museum of Play, and adds a cosmetic upgrade. Now it was being turned out in three primary colors, red, yellow, and blue, that could be blended into any color of the rainbow. And finally, they give it a soon-to-be iconic name. Originally, Joe McVicker called it the Rainbow Modeling Compound, and Kay Zufall said, that's a terrible name. Why don't you call it Play-Doh instead? It sent the product into the stratosphere. Over the next six decades, more than two billion cans of the popular dough are sold, cementing its status as an icon of American childhood. And today, in the strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, this small lump of gray wallpaper cleaner reminds visitors 
of a very colorful toy's humble beginnings. Founded in 1630, Boston is home to buildings as varied as the iconic Prudential Tower and the State House, which sits atop Beacon Hill. And on one quiet street is an institution dedicated to preserving this New England capital's rich past, the Massachusetts Historical Society. Its collection includes a cannon from the War of 1812, swords from the Battle of Bunker Hill, and a portrait of John Hancock. But among these storied relics is one rather plain item that, according to museum librarian Peter Drummy, played a central role in a truly sensational tale. We have in our collection a four-page manuscript document, brown with age, with faded ink, that's at the heart of one of the most extraordinary murder mysteries in American history. What was this brutal and horrifying crime? And what haunting piece of classic American literature did it inspire? 1830, Salem, Massachusetts. This once bustling port city is in a period of decline. And Joseph Knapp, a young sailor, is worried that he won't be able to provide for his wife. So Knapp goes to the only man who can help, his wife's wealthy uncle, Joseph White. Joseph White is 82 years old. He has a fortune that's estimated to be more than $400,000. But White has never approved of the young sailor's marriage to his beloved niece and refuses to offer any assistance. Joseph White has made it clear that Knapp and his wife are not going to receive anything from his vast estate. So a desperate Knapp devises his own remedy. He'll steal Joseph White's will. If White dies and leaves no will, then by law, his estate will be distributed evenly amongst the family. Joseph White has an extended family of nephews and nieces, all of whom will inherit part of this great fortune. And to guarantee that his scheme succeeds, Knapp takes it one step further. He plans to arrange for White's murder. To help in this greed-fueled plot, Joseph Knapp taps brothers Dick and George Crowninshield, two men entrenched in Salem's dark underbelly. The Crowninshield brothers are descendants of the first family of Salem. But they're the black sheep of the family. Knapp promises the Crowninshields a share of White's riches. And on April 2nd, 1830, they put the plan in motion. Joseph Knapp goes to Joseph White's home while he's away and steals the will. Four days later, with White back at home and fast asleep, Dick Crowninshield slips inside, brandishing a heavy club. Dick Crowninshield sees before him this very old man in his bed and crushes in his skull with a blow from his murder club. The next morning, White's body is discovered and the violent and bloody crime bewilders authorities. After scouring White's stately mansion, it seems nothing is out of place. 
There was large treasure in his house, but it hasn't been stolen. Why was this murder committed? It's a mystery. With no discernible motive and little in the way of evidence, the case goes cold. A gleeful nap burns White's last will and testament, certain he's committed the perfect crime. But will his devilish plot succeed? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Eighteen thirty, Salem, Massachusetts. A man named Joseph Knapp has executed a devious plot. He's orchestrated the murder of his uncle, destroyed the old man's will, and now stands to inherit a fortune. But will he get away with it? A few weeks after Joseph White's death, the case takes a surprising turn when the police are mailed a crucial clue. They receive a letter from a man who says that he knows that Joseph Knapp has paid Dick Crowninshield $1,000 to commit the murder. The letter's author explains that he overheard the men discussing their devious scheme in public. Police promptly arrest the Crown and Shields and Joseph Knapp, who feigns innocence in the matter. Joseph Knapp appears indignant. How could he be accused of such a horrific crime? But it soon becomes clear that Knapp won't be able to maintain the pretense for long. Joseph Knapp must have been very nervous at this time. The carefully laid plan 
is unraveling before his eyes. Racked with guilt, Knapp asks to meet with his family's reverend. And as the two men talk, Knapp suddenly blurts out a shocking confession. He orchestrated White's murder. And in fact, writes out a long, detailed confession of his role in the conspiracy and murder. Knapp and his fellow conspirators are put on trial, and a jury finds the men guilty, sentencing them to hang. But one final piece of evidence discovered long after the murder of Joseph White reveals the most shocking twist in the breathtaking crime. A key piece of evidence is now here at the Massachusetts Historical Society, and that was the most up-to-date version of Joseph White's will. This handwritten document was not the one that Knapp stole and lit on fire. This one was with White's attorney for safekeeping. And it contains the most ironic turn in this tragic tale. Knapp was to inherit money from Joseph White's estate. In fact, shortly before his brutal murder, White had amended this latest version of his will to leave Joseph Knapp $15,000. This will reveals that the murder of Joseph White, the entire conspiracy, was for nothing. And years later, the crime's sensational details fascinate an aspiring writer named Edgar Allan Poe. In 1843, Edgar Allan Poe publishes A Telltale Heart, which contains extraordinary parallels. In fact, in fiction, an old man is murdered in his bed. In each case, it's only the confession that causes their conviction. And today, the roots of Poe's dark literary classic live on in the collection of the Massachusetts Historical Society, where this will reminds visitors that sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Point Pleasant, West Virginia. This riverside hamlet is considered by some to be the site of the first battlefield of the Revolutionary War. But more recent otherworldly events have sparked a revolutionary change in our understanding of the universe. And many of these encounters are commemorated at the Mothman Museum. Artifacts from West Virginia's bizarre paranormal history fill the space. But there is one item here that stands galaxies apart. They are plastic, uh, seven inches across. They're very rare. Uh, They were almost destroyed. According to occult author and expert Susan Shepard, these artifacts tell a terrifying tale of a visitor from afar. They are one of the most important uh, artifacts in terms of the paranormal. So what exactly do these reel-to-reel recordings reveal about an extraordinary incident that to this day remains a mystery? November 2nd, 1966. Mineral Wells, West Virginia. After a long day on the job, 50-year-old sewing machine salesman Woodrow Derenberger returns home. When his wife greets him, she is shocked by his appearance. His wife said that he could have not been any whiter if he had been lying in a coffin. A fear-frozen Derenberger pulls himself together and shares the story of his confounding commute. At his wife's urging, Derenberger relays his experience to police. 
and whispers of a story begin to spread. A local news station arranges for an interview, and details of a chilling encounter go public. Although the footage has vanished, the original audio recordings of that interview are preserved at the Mothman Museum. And last night, uh, shortly after 7 o'clock, I was coming down Interstate 77, and this unidentified flying object twerved directly in front of my car. A hatch opens, a man steps out, the spacecraft then shoots up to about 75 feet over the highway. And awe-stricken Derenberger watches as the figure slowly approaches the car. He had dark hair that was slicked straight back. He was wearing a long black coat with a beaming smile. He said, don't be frightened, we wish you no harm. We wish you only happiness. The humanoid introduces himself as Indrid Cold. And while his intentions are not clear, he does reveal that he's a searcher from a distant planet of beings who eat, sleep, and breathe just like humans. The conversation lasted five to ten minutes, and Cold uh, ended the conversation with the words, Mr. Dernberger, we will be seeing you again. When Derenberger concludes his tale, the skeptical interviewer digs deeper. There were questions that were trying to discredit Mr. Derenberger. Uh, they asked him if he had stopped at a bar on the way home. Was he a drinker? But Derenberger remains adamant. What I saw last night, it was no figment of imagination. It was there, and I was there. But not everyone is convinced of Derenberger's veracity. You had a lot of people that were highly skeptical of Mr. Derenberger's account. At the same time, you had people looking for the UFOs in the sky. So is Derenberger telling the truth? November 2nd, 1966. Mild-mannered salesman Woodrow Derenberger claims to have had an otherworldly experience. A close encounter with a human-like figure that emerged from a spacecraft. Now, according to Derenberger, the figure communicated with him telepathically, relaying that he comes in peace. So, is Derenberger telling the truth? As police investigate the case of his encounter with Indrid Cold, several witnesses step forward with new evidence. The same night, uh, there was a gentleman who was driving south on I-77 that saw a man on the side of the road that fit the exact description of Indrid Cold. Other residents call police and report seeing beams and streaks of light in the sky that same evening. Yet no one can verify the source of these lights or confirm the identity of Indrid Cold. The police never turned up any concrete evidence that Derenberger was stopped by Andrew Cold or had any communications with him. Many speculate that what Derenberger experienced was the product of hallucinations. However, records reveal he had no history of mental illness. Lacking any logical explanation, there are those who believe that Derenberger's story is a hoax. There are some people that thought perhaps it was some attention-seeking thing. But as his notoriety grows, Derenberger retreats from the limelight. 
Mr. Derenberger ended up moving away from West Virginia because of the ridicule he and his family were getting. Despite the cost to his personal life, Derenberger never retracts his story. He dies in 1990 at the age of 74, with the true nature of what he encountered a lingering mystery. Today, these audio reels at the Mothman Museum stand as a testament to a mild-mannered man who never stopped believing in other worlds. With its kitschy boardwalk amusements and sport fishing, Beach Haven, New Jersey has served as an ocean resort town for more than a century. And no place celebrates the deep connection between the people of this area and the sea more than the New Jersey Maritime Museum. On display here are mementos from famous sea voyages, navigational equipment, and antique diving gear. But according to curator Deb Whitcraft, one item in these galleries has a history darker than the rest. It's made of coarse canvas-type material and includes cork panels with ties and is inscribed with the word adult on it. This standard-issue life vest tells a shocking tale of sabotage, intrigue, and murder. What role did it play in one of the most confounding maritime disasters of all time? September 5th, 1934. The SS Morro Castle, pride of the Ward Cruise Line, departs Havana, Cuba, en route to New York. Fitted with impressive staterooms and magnificent furnishings, the ship steams peacefully under the watchful and experienced command of Captain Robert Wilmot. Captain Wilmot had a wonderful record, not only with regards to safety, but also with regard to the way he treated his passengers. Two days into the voyage, as the Morro Castle cuts through the Atlantic waters, the voyage takes an ominous turn. In the early evening of September 7th, Captain Wilmot complains of an upset stomach, and he retires to his stateroom. Just hours later, it is discovered that Captain Wilmot is dead. Doctors are perplexed by his sudden demise. The cause of death is inconclusive. Captain Wilmot was thought to be in perfect health. To preserve the body for a later autopsy, it's placed in cold storage. The first officer takes command of the Morro Castle. And later that evening, with the ship several miles off the coast of New Jersey, a crew member appears on the bridge with even more disturbing news. At 2.45 a.m., it was reported there was a fire aboard the Morro Castle. Blinding, acrid smoke quickly fills the corridors and makes it impossible for many on board to reach the safety of the lifeboats. The fire went the entire length of the Morrow Castle, forcing people to find areas of the ship that the fire had not yet reached, and they were running out of options. Passengers rushed to grab life preservers, like the one on display at the New Jersey Maritime Museum. As the flames rise, many are forced to jump for their lives, plunging 50 feet into the icy waters below. By mid-morning, the ravaged passenger liner has drifted ashore off Asbury Park, New Jersey, captivating thousands of horrified beachgoers. 
When the ship ended up on the beach, most of the people who lost their lives had already jumped from the ship. In the end, more than 130 people, a quarter of those on board, are killed in the disaster. An outraged public demands answers, and an investigation is launched. Combing through the charred wreckage, officials determine the blaze originated in the writing room. And there, they make a shocking discovery. It was determined that the cleaning supplies in which only the crew members had access to played a role in the quick spread of the fire when it was initially started. Now, the police begin to wonder, did a crew member of the Morrow Castle set the ship ablaze? After the sudden death of Captain Robert Wilmot, the pleasure cruiser SS Morrow Castle catches fire and runs aground, killing 130 passengers and crew. But when investigators scour the smoldering ship's remains, they discover evidence of arson. So who set this devastating blaze and why? As investigators continue to search the ship, they find the remains of Captain Wilmot. But it seems the body has been moved. The remains weren't even recovered from the area where it is said that Captain Wilmot's body had been taken after his death. His remains are charred so badly that determining the cause of death is impossible. And investigators begin to suspect that the captain was murdered and that the killer set the fire to cover his tracks. Soon, investigators begin to focus on a crew member with a dubious record. The chief radio operator, George White Rogers. George Rogers had a criminal history a mile long. Pyromania, assaults, terroristic threats on people. Fellow crew members state that Rogers fell out of favor with the captain and that the two argued bitterly just hours before Wilmot's untimely demise. Captain Wilmot told George that his job as a radio operator would be over when the ship returned to New York. Despite their suspicions, investigators lack evidence in their case against Rogers. Today, Rogers is widely believed to have been responsible for the fire on board the ship and possibly for the murder of the captain. But no one can be 100% sure. The true culprit remains a mystery. And this life preserver on display at the New Jersey Maritime Museum stands as a reminder of a tragic voyage that started as a dream vacation, but became a nightmare at sea. Home to the big three automakers, Detroit, Michigan is known as the roaring engine of the modern American car industry. But it is also home to an institution that features the work of the old masters. The Detroit Institute of the Arts. Here, over 100 galleries are filled with priceless pieces by Diego Rivera, Peter Paul Rubens, and countless others. But according to senior curator Alan Darr, one ornate artwork comes from an artist just as gifted, but far less known. It's a large and rather wonderful marble 
has a complexity that is indicative of the talent of the sculptor. This delicately carved piece depicts a loving moment between the Madonna and child. But it represents a stunning tale of greed, deception, and betrayal that brought the art world to its knees. How is this sculpture tied to a scandal of truly monumental proportions? 1924, Italy. In the years following World War I, a devastated country finds itself in desperate need of the funds to rebuild. And in an effort to bring in money from foreign investors, the government allows some of the nation's most treasured art to be sold to the highest bidder. It was then possible to acquire works of art, great treasures from Italy that now would be impossible. With wealthy collectors eager to snatch up works by Michelangelo, Donatello, and other Italian masters, representatives from American museums are dispatched to the continent. The Italian Renaissance and Gothic period commanded enormous prices in the 20s. And one man believes he can take advantage of this booming post-war demand for Italian masterpieces. His name? Alfredo Fazzoli. And he has a daring scheme to separate Western collectors from their money. Pass off forgeries as works of classic Italian artists. To make his plot succeed, Fasoli exploits the talents of a struggling artist named Alceo Dosena. Dosena was a very talented sculptor. He was pretty much self-taught. Fasoli had first encountered Dosena eight years earlier in Rome, where the artist was selling small terracotta sculptures on the street. Fasoli was blown away. He was so surprised that this was such a high-quality work. It looks like an antique. Fazzoli had someone here who was very talented as a sculptor and could make other pieces to look old. Fasoli becomes Dosena's patron and sets him up in a studio. But Dosena is kept in the dark about the full extent of Fasoli's plot. Satisfied to carve hundreds of ornate marble works for a small commission. He received very little money, maybe the equivalent of a few hundred dollars for each piece. To dupe hungry collectors, Fasoli arranges for Dosena's work to be placed in convents and cathedrals, passing them off as antiquities and building intrigue for eager Americans. Fasoli builds a story about the newly discovered important Italian Renaissance or Italian Gothic or ancient Greek sculpture. Fasoli's scheme fools some of the biggest institutions and names of the art world. In June 1924, a man named Harold Parsons comes to Rome in search of masterpieces for the Cleveland Museum of Art. There, he meets none other than Alfredo Fazzoli. Fazzoli lets it slip that he knows where there might be an important work in marble by Nicola Pisano, one of the great artists of the Italian Gothic period. When they arrive at the convent outside the city, Parsons is awestruck by the gorgeous statue by the 14th century father of modern sculpture. He said, I must have that for the Cleveland Art Museum. Fazzoli negotiates the price of $18,000, which Parsons gladly pays. And thrilled at having secured a genuine Pisano, Parsons has it shipped to Cleveland and trusting Fazzoli to find more great works for the museum over the next four years. But as Parsons leans on Fasoli for more treasures, 
something soon happens that shakes the art world to its core. It's the late 1920s when an American art museum purchases a beautiful sculpture of the Madonna from an Italian art dealer. They think they've acquired a rare masterpiece. But when the work's authenticity is called into question, it triggers an unprecedented art world scandal. In 1928, Fazzoli's scheme comes crashing down when he is sued in a Roman court for passing off forged artworks as antiquities. The man behind the lawsuit is Alceo de Sena. But why would the artist sue the art dealer? That year, after creating works for Fazzoli for over a decade, Alceo de Sena made a shocking discovery. He heard through connections in the art world that Fazzoli sold one of his pieces to a London museum for $150,000, passing it off as the work of an old master. De Sena, who had been paid a mere trifle compared to this hefty sum, was stunned. And he confronted Fazzoli and said, I'm getting practically nothing and you're getting very rich. I want more money. And when Fazzoli brushes him off, De Sena goes public with the details of their arrangement. The word got out that Dosena had made these pieces, and Fazzoli's reputation was shattered. Soon, news of the scandal reaches America, and Harold Parsons is devastated when he learns the true provenance of his cherished finds. This wasn't the wonderful Nicola Pisano marble Madonna from the 14th century, but in fact, it was an Elcheo Dosena. Despite this immense fiasco, Dosena tries to salvage his reputation and continues to make works in the classical style, including this marble Madonna, now on display at the Detroit Institute of the Arts. But art buyers, still reeling from the deception wrought by his former handler, failed to value de Sena's work very highly. In 1933, a lot of 39 of the artist's sculptures sells for just over $9,000. He was crushed. In the end, Dosena dies a few years later, penniless and impoverished, broken man. And today, this beautiful sculpture by Alceo Dosena is on display at the Detroit Institute of the Arts, reminding all who see it that the value of a work of art is found not only in the skill of the artist, but in the name of the man who made it. From a cursed film to an art world fiasco, an accidental invention to an alien encounter. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.